The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. We're joined by a woman who has been at the Pendulum Summit here in Dublin for the past couple of days. She's been talking about strategic leadership and where she bases her insights into strategic leadership is her time in the RAF flying the supersonic tornado uh, fighter in Iraq in a a number of other theatres as well. She is Mandy Hickson. Good morning, Mandy. Good morning. Um, I, I'm right. I, am I right in describing it as a fighter or is it fighter bomber or is it one Ooh, of... Oh, yeah, it's a lovely little one. Well, basically the tornado, I flew the tornado GR4, which is officially a bomber or ground attack, which is what the GR bit is. But often, you know, when you're talking to people, if you say you're a fighter pilot, it just gives a lot of people the idea of what the aeroplane sort of does. Um, but you're right, actually, the distinction is there between fighter or bomber um, or ground attack. But we're still talking swept wings, top gun, Mach 2, we all that crap. are. Oh, good. Yes, okay. Right, definitely, yes. Um, and the tornadoes are renowned, really, for being one of the most, you know, iconic, fast wing, swept wing aircraft that there is. How did you come to fly it? It's um, a good question. I started off just as a young girl, really. I was growing up in Manchester uh, in the UK and I joined the University Air Squadron. I joined the Air Cadets. So I basically went through a very traditional sort of route of um, of basically taking all the opportunities that were given to me free of charge in any organisation I could possibly join that was anything to do with flying. And I think it was that that really stimulated my passion um, for aviation, especially at a time where women weren't allowed to be pilots in the Air Force. That was quite an interesting time to really be going through all of that. Women weren't allowed to be pilots? No, I know. And it sounds archaic, doesn't it? But it was, I mean, when I first started flying, it was the year that Top Gun came out. So I was 13, 1986. Um, And so... Yeah, they they only changed the rules in 1991 originally and then 92 to become fast jet pilots. And so really for those early years when I was really interested in this as a career, I had chosen one that it was impossible to achieve my dream in. Which is, we hear this thing of, if I can see it, I can be it, that it is extremely difficult to find your way into a career where there are no visible role models. Why did you think you would be able to have any opportunity in that area if there was no precedent? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I often say you've got to see it to believe it, but actually you're absolutely right, Anton. There was no role models for me to look up to at that stage. But I think because we were allowed to fly um, with the air cadets, which we did, and and I joined the air cadets on the first day they opened the doors to girls. um, And then when I flew at university, in my mind, it, it was simply a case of waiting, waiting for the moment that they would change the rules, because I was under no illusion that they would change those rules. It was just a case of waiting for them to do it. And and when they did, um, and I applied, I then failed all of the tests to be a pilot, not once but twice. So suddenly, not only have I <laughs> chosen this really tricky job, actually, there is now officially no way forward for me to pursue it. So how did you overcome the failures? Well, I often sort of talk about the fact that we really need other people to believe in us. And I was very lucky. I had the support of um, a boss with the, within the University Air Squadron. And it was that boss that sort of, he, he couldn't balance the fact that he'd been flying with me. I was one of the better pilots that was going through the University Air Squadron. And yet I couldn't pass and translate my skill set in the air to passing computer-based aptitude tests. And so he decided to investigate it, to challenge the RAF and their testing policy and under investigation, he finds out that the majority of women taking the test were failing them compared to men. And so in the end, you know, 
they, they, he uncovered, he, I'm sorry, he uncovered an un- unconscious bias that was existing really within their testing system. And they took me on in the end of the test case. And they actually said to me, we're taking one to find out how far someone with no aptitude can get before they fail, which was really lovely. <laughs> oh, what a way to start a gig. I know. Can you imagine it? And, you know, when I do my speeches, I'll often ask the audiences and I'll say, what do you think that did? And nearly everyone says, well, it made you more determined. I said, no, it didn't. Because if you're, because of course it's going to do the opposite, isn't it? You know, if you're, here's a goal, you know, you set yourself a goal, I'm going to run the marathon. And then you actually say in brackets, I'm never going to achieve it. Well, then you're not going to start on the journey, are you? So actually it took me all of my strength and my psychological willpower to say, okay, they're setting me up to fail. But, you know, I've still got to keep on moving towards that goal. But the problem was, is that every time you fail a flight, every time you struggle, your default setting in the back of your mind is, well, it's because I'm not good enough. It's because I shouldn't re- really be here. And that's actually going to be really, really challenging. When you then made it through and were qualified to um, fly the tornado, was it worth it? Absolutely. Every single second. Yeah. I mean, um, I remember I was writing the chapter of my book where it was talking about the first flight that I ever did in a tornado. And I just said, I couldn't work out when I landed if the smile that was plastered to my face was was permanent. Had it become a fast jet thing, you know, because suddenly the power that you unleash within this incredible aircraft, I mean, just lighting the burners on a on the runway is the equivalent of sort of going from a standing start to, you know, you know, heading up. Like if you're on a beginning of a roller coaster when you're thrust back into your seat and you're getting about 2G of lateral acceleration, that's what you're experiencing just on takeoff alone. What about issues to do with things like fear and danger? Because it is one thing to fly a fast jet in a training environment over domestic skies. It's another to do it when you're enforcing no-fly zones over Iraq. Yeah, it is actually. But interestingly, and I do talk about fear. My fear was never of being shot down. My fear was nearly always of letting my team down. And I think you've you go through this training system and and probably one of the things they don't do or they certainly didn't do when I was going through was they didn't really probably give you enough, I don't want to say counselling, but just enough discussion time to actually say, you know what, you're training to be a fast jet pilot, you will ultimately have to drop weapons and potentially kill people as a consequence of what you're doing. And it's a really strange one, and I know that sounds stark obvious, and it's almost like, why are you even saying that, Mandy? But if you think about it, throughout your entire training, you're just loving the flying, you want to be the best on your course. If you are in that top, you know, percentile, you will get onto the next course, you will fly fast jets. And each time you're pushing yourself beyond your own limits and you just want to, you know, be there and you want to do the job. And then you actually need to think about, hold on a minute, I'm now going to go to war. Now that's a very different thing, as you said. Um, And that's one that you know, I know a lot of people did suffer with, you know, especially actually more Afghanistan, bizarrely, rather than um, the Gulf, because Afghanistan was a low-level war for for many pilots, um, whereas Iraq for myself was a medium-level war. So you're flying at sort of 20,000 feet. So there is a sense of removal from your actions, which I know sounds crazy, but when you're flying at height, unless you actually see the footage of your of what's happened as a consequence of what you've done, then it's quite easy just to sort of feel like I'm in my own office environment. But does that mean that you are aware that you have killed people? Yeah. So, I mean, 
when I think one of the most darkest moments for myself was we were flying on a mission um, just to the south of Baghdad. And it was a very, very high profile mission. President Bush Jr. had just taken over and I think he wanted to flex his muscles. And I also believe that there was, it was a very critical point for the communication systems over in Iraq at the time because they were about to basically get all of their all the communications that we were getting up to that point and all our intelligence was coming from over the ground communication systems and they were about to connect their entire fiber optic cells. Um, and so we were given a target to destroy a fiber optics building, which was just to the south of Baghdad. And I was what's known as in a cooperative attack. So I was lasing a target. So what happens is when you go off, you will often go off as a pair of aircraft or as a four ship of aeroplanes. And when you drop a weapon, it's dropped on um, a precise GPS location. And yet, if you want it to go into a particular door or into a weak spot on a building, then the other person will use laser-guided energy. And after the weapon has located that target, it then opens up its sensors, looks for the laser-guided energy, will pull up your energy, and it will actually alter its course to come in on the same trajectory that you're lasing that door, for example. Um, and then you will delay your weapon so that it will not go off and explode on impact. It will explode delayed to, say, go into the basement. So your weapon's now going to penetrate to the basement of that building and then it will just, then it will explode. And um, there was an unmanned aerial vehicle above our target and we saw a man who was having a cigarette outside and he was having a drink of hot drink of tea and he threw his hot tea on the floor and he stabbed his cigarette out, opened the door and our weapon went in the other side of the building at this exact moment. And we were now watching all of this footage from the, from this predator when we got back after we landed. And my heart literally was in my mouth. I was thinking, oh my goodness, I've just witnessed, you know, firsthand exactly what we're doing. And, and then the door opened and he ran out and he leapt into his car and he just drove straight through the desert. And I just remember thinking, and it was almost this sigh, all four pilots were in the pilots and aircrew were in the room. And we all went, oh, because ultimately you are not there because you're bloodthirsty. You're not there because you're wanting to kill people. That is not the reason. You're there to do a job that you've been trained highly, you know, in that area. And the outcome will, of course, be that there will be potentially loss of life. But my, I can literally say categorically, hand on heart, that there's never been a situation where we have um, been involved in weapons whereby there have been civilians or any civilian casualties involved whatsoever. The way you describe it, uh, the doing of a job and that that's what you focus on. When you finish doing it, you, you've now moved into the area of advising others and advising on things like strategic leadership. <coughs> Is the, are the things that you learn in that kind of environment so specific to that environment that they can't be transposed elsewhere or do they fit elsewhere? Absolutely not. They are, they are completely read across. So when I left, actually, um, I became really, really interested in the human factor elements of it. So when we look at aviation as a whole, it is a high risk industry. And um, one of the things they realised is that in the 1990s, for example, was when technology was improving and automation was advancing, you know, ultimately the aircraft should be much safer. And yet they were seeing a huge rise in the accident rate. And they realised that it's all, it doesn't matter how good the automation is, it's the human element that will cause the problems. So they had to look at training the human in, in human factors and really that collaboration working with each other, but working with the technology as well. And so 
basically we now undertake a year every year we do a refresher course and ours is called crew resource management basically it's human factors and we look at everything there's 16 different subject areas from stress management communication to decision making under pressure situational awareness leadership trust culture and we talk about all of those things and we will look at incidents or accidents that have happened we break them down we analyze it it's all facilitated training and when i became a trainer in this area I would go into initially into aviation organizations and I'd be training. And then I started to do the odd speech. And as I was doing the odd speech, I'd say, what do you want me to focus on? They were like, communication, decision-making, trust. And I was like, hold on a minute. This is what's keeping us alive and safe in the air. These are, these are the things that create, you know, trust and profitability and empowerment of our team within the corporate sector. And so I basically did a complete pivot and realized that there was so much learning that you could take from aviation into any corporate environment. And for the last 12 years, that's what I've been doing. I've been delivering those lessons all over the world. You talk about the, the impact of safety in, in terms of, of um, crew resource management and crew interaction rather than the, the um, aircraft itself because they are so safe. Interesting recently, though, there has been mm-hmm. something of Don't. a U-turn in respect of that. Would you currently be eager to sit in the back of a 737 MAX 9? Yeah, it's not been the best start, has it, for the year? I mean, what was really interesting, I was reading that just this morning, that 2023, we, we didn't have one loss of life in any, com- in any commercial aircraft. And then 2024 has been a pretty disastrous start. You know, here we are, we got two weeks in, and there's been, you know, two enormous aircraft incidents. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that really is a, a reminder as to why we should strap in when we're flying in the back it's of an aircraft. It's extraordinary stuff, though, isn't it? I yeah, mean, a door plug blown out at 18,000 feet yeah. in the car. I mean, incredible that there wasn't more more damage really, and, and you know, more people weren't injured and than that, really. So, yeah, not good at all. And that after the incident in Japan as well. So, no, it's not been the best start. I spoke a while ago to Chris Hadfield, and I, I asked him what was the one aircraft that he hasn't <coughs> flown that he would like to fly. It's a mistake to ask Chris Hadfield that because the answer is I've flown every single <laughs> aircraft that's ever been made. But <laughs> briefly, the same thing to you: is there one that you look at and go, "Oh, I'd love to fly that." Well, I think it would have to be for me, it would be the Lightning, the F-35 now, because I just think, you know, it's, I mean, what an incredible aircraft we've got there. And it's ours, you know, we're flying it. Um, I just like to have a go in the simulator, quite frankly. Um, but um, I, I would never forget when I finished the, I was just coming up to the end and I had to go in the Typhoon sim. And um, the Typhoon was just sort of coming on board and it was already exciting. And I just remember I went to British Aerospace and I plugged the burners in in the simulator and they said, they said, Mandy, you're up at 50,000 feet, maybe you should take them out. And I was like, what? The <laughs> climb rate well, on this it, jet was phenomenal. If ever there is a line to finish on, that is it. Mandy, thank you so much. That is former RAF fighter pilot expert in strategic leadership Mandy Hickson The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk